In anticipation of this summer's vacation season, I noticed that Yahoo Travel has published a list of America's most overrated tourist attractions. Number one on the list is Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco. Coming in second is the Petrified Forest in Arizona. Third is Wall Street in New York City. And fourth on the list of overrated tourist stops is Plymouth Rock. You know, I've been to three of the top four, and for me, Plymouth Rock is hands down the lamest tourist destination in America. It's a pitiful specimen of a rock. Trust me, Plymouth Rock is a tourist attraction that just don't rock. You know, history students know that Plymouth Rock is the 1620 landing spot of a group of Protestant Christians from England. They stepped out of their boats into a new world in search of a place to worship God, according to the Bible and according to their conscience. They were tired of being oppressed by the Church of England. The pilgrims longed to worship freely and faithfully. In a sense, religious liberty in America was built on Plymouth Rock. And today, folks from all over the world They come to Plymouth, Massachusetts to visit this famed piece of history. (laughs) But when they get there, what a letdown. Several years ago, I I actually had a chance to teach at a Calvary Chapel men's retreat in Plymouth, Massachusetts. And ignoring the advice of my host, between sessions, I decided to hike down to the memorial. It's just a couple of blocks. I'm thinking, while I'm here, I need to see it. But everyone was right. It was a laugher. Plymouth Rock is a gray, oblong, dirty-looking stone, maybe three feet by two feet. They've built this Greek arch over the site, but the stone itself sits just in the sand, just outside of the water. The date 1620 is etched on its side, but that's all. In fact, puny Plymouth Rock has a gate around it to keep it from being stolen. It's just a nondescript stone you otherwise would never notice. I guess in my mind, I expected to see Miles Standish, musket in hand, standing triumphantly on this noble-looking rock cliff, jutting out over the water. But instead, all I saw was a lame little rock lying on the beach. Well, in 1 Peter chapter 2, you don't have to worry We as Christians are called pilgrims, but we are founded on a solid rock. And as we learned last week, there's nothing lame about our rock. Jesus isn't a Plymouth rock. He is a mammoth rock. In verse 4 of the chapter, Peter calls Jesus a living stone. In verse 6, he is our chief cornerstone, elect and precious. In verse 7, he is the stone that the builders of Judaism rejected but has become the chief cornerstone of all that God is doing in the world today. And in verse 8, a warning for those who reject him as cornerstone, he becomes a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. You can't sidestep Jesus. Jesus is the rock that rocks. There's nothing lame about our superstone. Jesus is the sure cornerstone on which an enduring life can be built. Hey, Plymouth Rock is an overgrown pebble, but Jesus is an El Capitan. 
He is a big rock. And it's upon Jesus that we as spiritual pilgrims have landed. In Christ, we found forgiveness and freedom. We've left behind the old world of sin and oppression, and we stepped out into a new world of holiness and happiness and and usefulness. Life should never be the same for us. But according to Peter, Jesus is not the only living stone because his followers are like him. He also calls us living stones. This means that the life of Jesus has been birthed in us. That Jesus makes us alive and strong and solid and even rock-like. Do you really understand what Jesus has done for you and in you? This week, I, I downloaded a new recording on my iPod. I listen to it when I run. And this new song, it's from 10th Avenue North. It is such a wonderful song. It's such a hopeful song. I want you to listen to these lyrics. You are more than the choices that you make. You are more than the sum of your past mistakes. You are more than the problems that you create. You've been remade. And in the bridge, this is not about what you've done but what's been done for you. This is not about where you've been, but where brokenness brings you to. This is not about what you feel, but what he felt to forgive you and what he felt to make you new. You've been remade. Christians are now living stones. We've been remade. We're forgiven and alive and strong in Christ. As we talked about last week, in the ancient world, rocks and stones were the building materials of choice. And Peter is saying that now that we've been remade, God is fitting us together. He's made us fit, and now he's fitting us together, one stone upon another, stone after stone, as a temple of praise to him. Yet, here's the question this morning. Are you living on the rock? Are we building a life for Jesus Are we working on a life that really rocks? A few verses earlier, Peter laid out our calling. He says, we're a chosen generation. We're a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. We're a special people. But now he wonders, are we living up to our birthright? Have we truly embraced our calling? You know, sadly, this doesn't happen automatically. You know, if becoming a Christian were like climbing a mountain, say, No one would ever underestimate its significance. I mean, once you've navigated the thin air and the steep terrain and risked your life to scale Mount Everest, you appreciate being on top of the world. But no one becomes a Christian by daring deeds or by risking their life. Being a Christian is not climbing a mountain. Jesus is the mountain climber. I'm just the onlooker. We're saved because Jesus risked his life for us. He did the daring deed. He climbed the mountain, dragging a cross behind him, by the way. Jesus did the heavy lifting. Our job is just to behold and to believe. But once we're on top with him, we should be just as thrilled as if we'd climbed there ourselves. Fellowship with Jesus, knowing God, should be every bit as exciting and breathtaking as if we'd risk it all and climb the mountain personally. We should appreciate the vistas every bit as much. And our gratitude should spill over into every arena of our lives. 
You know, this is what the rest of the book of 1 Peter is about. From here on, Peter is going to talk about practical living, being good citizens, obeying the government, respecting your boss, handling persecution, loving your spouse, loving one another, returning evil with good, leading the church, following our leaders. You see, a Christian isn't just a person who's changed on the inside. We live an outward life that proves it. Our behavior is consistent with our beliefs. You see, Peter wants us to know that how we live our lives tomorrow is very, very important. In fact, he reaches out to his listeners in earnest. Here in verse 11, he calls them beloved. He begs them to understand. Now that they're a living stone, are they living their lives on the rock? Are they building a life of faith and freedom? And three truths are strategic. We'll find them in these morning's verses. He's going to talk about our status. He's going to talk about our struggle. And then he's going to talk about the stakes, that the stakes are high. This is what he discusses now in verses 11 and 12. Peter writes first about our status. In verse 11, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. Now this is the second time that Peter has used the term pilgrims. You remember back in the very first verse, chapter 1, verse 1, he addresses his letter to the pilgrims, of the dispersion, or literally the pilgrims that have been scattered. You know, during the feast days, Jews obedient to the ancient mandate would journey back to Jerusalem. They would come from all over the world. And it was at just such a gathering, the Feast of Pentecost, that the Master decided to launch His church. The Holy Spirit was poured out on those first followers. Fire was overhead. Praise was overheard. A buzz was in the air. And many of those first believers, they hung around. At least until the persecution started. That's when most of the visiting converts, they returned to their homes. Now Peter is speaking to them again. This time with pen and parchment. And he reminds them that they're still sojourners and pilgrims. They may be home now, but they're not really home yet. You see, their status hasn't changed. They're still only passing through. You know, whenever persecution raises its ugly head, it's a stark reminder to followers of Jesus that this world is not our final resting place. We also are a holy nation in an alien and hostile environment. Don't be deceived. At times, for self-serving reasons, the world will snuggle up to the church. But ultimately, this world is no sympathizer to the cause of Christ. If this world persecuted the master, trust me, it will persecute his followers. Christians live behind enemy lines. The word sojourner in verse 11, it means a temporary dweller. Never forget, that's what's stamped on your spiritual passport. Temporary resident. This world is not our home. We're traveling through life like little kids in the back seat. And God is the driver of the car. Oh, you hit a home run in Little League and 
you win the game and you're a hero for the moment. You're feeling so great and you ask, are we there yet? And God answers, no, not yet. Your first kiss sends goosebumps up and down you. And you ask, are we there now? And God says, not yet. It's your wedding day. And you ask, are we there now? And the driver answers, no, not yet. You take your dream vacation and you ask, we're almost there now, aren't we? And God responds, no, not yet. When your baby's born into the world, there's such elation. And you ask, Lord, this has got to be heaven. Are we there yet? And God says, not yet. When that baby goes off to college, you you think, are we there yet? God says, no, not yet. When the grandbabies come, I've been told, I'll think, man, this has got to be heaven. But the driver will answer, no, not yet. You see, it doesn't matter how great this life gets. This world is not our home. We are sojourners passing through. Peter also calls us pilgrims. You see, the word sojourner speaks to the fact that we're headed home. But the name pilgrim describes the way that we get there. Webster's Dictionary defines the word pilgrim as, quote, one who travels to a holy place as an act of devotion. You see, a person on a pilgrimage in the Holy Land won't just view it as a vacation. He or she will see it as a means of deepening their devotion to Jesus. What makes a trip a pilgrimage is not just the destination, but it's the person, person's purpose behind the trip and the person's behavior on the trip. You see, a pilgrimage is a walk of worship. And this life for you and me is just that, a walk of worship. As believers, we're traveling to the holiest destination of all. We're traveling to heaven. And Peter's contention is that you don't raise hell on the way to heaven. No, the goal is to act like you will when you get there, but to act that way along the way. A pilgrim lives with joy in their heart and praise on their lips and love in their life, and humility in their step, and gratitude in their soul, and the glory of God in their sights. It's not just a destination we're on, but the attitude that we exhibit on the way is what makes us a pilgrim. Let me provide you some needed perspective this morning. You see, a pilgrim has but one allegiance. Not to the country through which he passes, but his allegiance is first and foremost to his home country. His heart is fixed on home. His eyes are set on the road ahead, not on the world around. In fact, there's a certain aloofness that characterizes a sojourner and a pilgrim. A traveler traveler is more interested in wings than he is in roots. He's not trying to settle down in one place. A sojourner isn't thinking too long term. And yet too many Christians I talk to, they're overly attached to country and to culture. Here's an example. I'm all for free market economies and American democracy. In fact, I believe that they are ultimately derived from Christian principles. But in its history, the church has lived through all kinds of governments and economic systems. Christianity has spread under kings and dictators. Even in the feudal system, Christianity thrived and spread. 
Its greatest expansion occurred under Roman emperors, no less. Apparently, the power of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the cross work equally well under communism as they do in a free market society. We're going to learn next week, certainly, that as Christians we need to be good citizens. But understand, God doesn't wear red, white, and blue. God isn't waving an American flag. He's bigger than any one country or any system of government. And neither is God limited to a particular culture. All too often, Christians are seen by the world as promoting a sectarian brand of culture. In the minds of Middle Middle East Muslims, Christianity and Western materialism go hand in hand. Christianity is the white man's religion or the rich man's religion. Not so. It's wrong to portray Christianity as conservative, 1950-ish, white, middle-class American culture. Neither is it 1960s hippie, Jesus freak culture. Hey, Christianity today is growing among tribal Africans in Nigeria. It thrives among indigenous Filipinos. Peruvian Indians are coming to Jesus in droves. Christianity is a belief with no borders. Politically or geographically or culturally, true biblical faith is transcultural and spiritual and eternal. I read a story about Mike Warnock. He tells of a mission trip that he took where he was ministering to North African immigrants outside of Paris. It was just after 9-11, and he was shocked to see the little boys with their arms spread like this, reenacting the planes that had flown into the Twin Towers. As he worked among these people, he heard shouts of, Bin Laden is my father. Viva Saddam. Mike has a deep love for his country, and he recoiled when he heard such venomous anti-American sentiment. But that's when he had to decide. Was his first allegiance to Uncle Sam or to the Lord Jesus? Mike laid aside his American pride and interest to share the love of Jesus with these Muslims. You see, as travelers passing through, we need to remember that Christianity's headquarters is not of this world. The here and now is not our home. We live in a great country. But God is not American. The church's challenge is to navigate an always shifting political and cultural landscape while founding our values on the unchangeable rock. Never forget, your status in this world is sojourner and pilgrim. But we also, we face a struggle And I know some of you are struggling this morning. Peter writes, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Boy, that term, fleshly lusts. Just sounds evil, doesn't it? Sounds like some perverse sexual fetish, fleshly lusts. Sounds like a porn site or an X-rated movie, fleshly lusts. And it certainly includes such behavior. But the term Peter uses is much broader. A fleshly lust is a natural desire that's lost its bearings. It's a desire that has come untethered from the will of God. It's now out there on its own. Think of a boat. 
that comes untethered from its anchor. It's now floating uncontrollably around the harbor. It's smashing into stuff, even other boats. And it's doing all kinds of damage to itself and to everything that's in its path. Are you in this kind of a struggle this morning? For some, a noble desire to provide for their family has swelled. It's morphed into an uncontrollable need to just make more money. What once fed the family is now destroying the marriage. We all have to eat. But has food become your pacifier? Do you run home and drown your sorrows in a bag of potato chips? Or maybe your crutch is alcohol. Life is really hard. And it's easier to just numb the pain than it is to deal with the issues. Some of you battle depression or bitterness or hatred or fear. An uncontrollable drive for acceptance has trapped you in an abusive relationship. An unforgiving hatred causes terrible thoughts about harming another person to come through your head. Out-of-control assumptions about how you should look or how much you should weigh cause you to abuse your body. Sexual intimacy is a natural, God-given desire. But you cut the tie to what's biblical and healthy and even normal long ago. Today, your desires rage out of control like an inferno. And all these issues, they're a struggle. They are a war. Peter says... Fleshly lusts war against your soul. And notice, he says they war against your soul, not just your body. Peter could have mentioned how fleshly lusts cause cirrhosis of the liver, and STDs, and heart disease, and obesity. Out-of-control desires take a toll on us physically. But Peter says they also war against the soul. When an area of our life spins out of control, it creates a stress and a pressure our psyche was never meant to bear. Psychological and emotional disorders develop. Depression sets in. Anxiety attacks. A fleshly lust will war against the soul just as it will do harm to your body. And fleshly lust, perhaps worst of all, wreak havoc on your faith. God has made you a living stone, part of a spiritual temple. But it's hard to believe that truth if you've given over to fleshly lusts. Living stones shouldn't be getting stoned. That's how out-of-control habits war against the soul. They cripple our faith. They undermine our belief in what Jesus has done for us and in us. They force us further from the one who loves us and lives in us and wants to free us. Understand this, once a normal desire gets detached from God's purpose and starts rampaging uncontrollably through your life, reining it in and striking a truce are no longer options for you. Negotiating a compromise won't end the war. At that point, the only winning strategy is abstain. Abstain. Not moderation. Abstain. Abstain. Abstinence. Peter writes in verse 11, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. The Greek word translated abstain means to hold away from one's person. 
to hold away from one's person. Here's what Peter is telling us. Once a desire spins out of control, then you've got to let it go. Once a lust develops a mind and will of its own, and it begins to act in destructive ways, you can't go back and to try to reel it in. It doesn't work. You've got to create some distance between who you are and that desire. If the out-of-control habit is gambling, then you've got to stop gambling. You've got to stop hanging out with gamblers. You've got to stop going places where you can gamble. If it's alcohol, you've got to admit that moderation is now impossible. You've passed that option. You just can't take another drink. One drink and you're a drunk. As they say, once you're a pickle, you can't become a cucumber again. You've got to cut out any and all consumption. If your addiction is sex, you've got to commit to total purity. Reduce your exposure to harmful influences. Stop logging on and going places and seeing people and setting yourself up for failure because you're too proud to admit the severity of your problem. Safeguards become absolutely essential. If you suffer from a food obsession, then you just got to empty the cupboard. You see, some issues can't be totally escaped. We have to work and we have to eat. And we remain sexual creatures. But we've got to frame the out-of-control area of our life clearly and then abstain. No excuses. To abstain is to distance yourself as far as possible from the fleshly lust that you fight. I've used this illustration before, but it deserves repeating. Imagine a rope about five foot long. One end is tied to my ankle and the other end is tied to a pit bull with rabies. And here I am trying to live a normal life. I get up in the morning, go to bed at night, I work, I come home, I hang out with my friends. I mean, do you see a problem with this picture? Of course you do. There's no way my life will have any semblance of normality. Maybe for a few hours while the pit bull's asleep, but my life will be in utter turmoil. I can't work. Because the dog bites and growls at my coworkers, I can't spend quality time with my kids. They're afraid of the vicious dog I'm carrying around. My wife won't sleep with me because I bring a pit bull to bed. None of my friends will hang out. The only friend I got left is Michael Vick. I mean, my whole life is in shambles. And here's the deal. I can spend thousands of hours in counseling, learning how to be a good employee and a better husband and a loving dad and a loyal friend. But face it, until I cut that doggone dog off my ankle, nothing I do is going to solve my problems and help my life. This is why Jesus told us, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. And Peter is saying something similar here. Abstain from fleshly lusts. Remember, these are the desires that war against your soul. Either you're killing the lust or it's killing you. There's no signing a truce. There's no happy medium that you can strike. Joy and freedom don't coexist with fleshly lust. When you came to Jesus, you were crucified with Him. He changed you. But now you need to crucify that fleshly lust. You need to turn it loose. 
You need to let it go. You need to get it away from you. You need to declare war on that fleshly lust. Galatians 5 verse 24 tells us, those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. See, it's time to live in the Spirit and to begin to create new habits. It's time to go on the offensive with new patterns. Think new thoughts. Develop new habits. Start living a spiritual life. Yes, the Christian life involves a struggle. But you can overcome. In fact, it's very vital that you overcome because the stakes are really high. Peter explains this in verse 12. He says, Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. Notice the Gentile or the unbelieving world of Peter's day was guilty of floating lies, hateful lies, and false rumors and malicious slander against the church. They were passing out all kinds of misinformation about the followers of Jesus. Over the years, there have been plenty of falsehoods told about me and about our church. In the early days, our informal atmosphere and our contemporary worship caused folks to label us a cult. Because we revel in God's extravagant grace, we've been accused of going soft on sin. Lies like that happen. But we've never suffered the injustices hurled at the early church. You know, believers in Peter's day, they were accused of cannibalism. Communion was misunderstood by the pagans. Eating the body and drinking the blood sounded sinister. The church called its weekly meal the agape feast or the love feast. You know, they called it that because they shared a good meal with the poor members of the fellowship. But the world around them suggested that that name referred to some kind of wild sexual orgy they were having. Christians in the early centuries were viewed as antisocial because they wouldn't participate in Rome's lewd and violent entertainment. They were called atheists because they refused to worship Rome's pantheon of gods and goddesses. The early Christians had volumes of misinformation to overcome, yet overcome it they did. And it was not by debates or rebuttals or letters to the editor to set the record straight. No, they overcame the misinformation through the exemplary way that they conducted themselves. Living on the rock is what silenced their critics. Barclay writes of a time a few hundred years later, he says, in the early third century, the Greek skeptic Celsus made the most famous and systematic attack upon the Christians. He accused them of ignorance and foolishness and superstition and all kinds of things, but never of immorality. You see, by this time in history, the church had gained such a reputation for integrity and purity that most Romans found it hard to believe that there was such a thing as an immoral Christian. What kind of an impact would we have on the world around us if we still had that kind of reputation? Today, the only way the church makes the headlines is when there's some sizzling scandal. Are we living on the rock? Never forget, your life is the only Bible 
that some people will ever read. I love the little refrain. You're writing a gospel, a chapter each day by the deeds that you do and by the words that you say. Men, read what is written, either faithful or true. So tell me, what is the gospel according to you? We need to build our lives on the rock for the stakes are really high. Well, in verse 12, Peter speaks of the day of visitation. Now, he's probably thinking of a special day. A day at the end of the age when Jesus returns to rapture away his church. But what if he's also thinking of a very average day? A day like tomorrow, maybe. You wake up like any other day, but all through the day, Jesus is invited to look in and drop in on you. It's take a Savior to work day. Jesus eavesdrops in on every conversation. He's privy to every text message. He participates with you in all your activities. It's open house all day long. Understand, this is your tomorrow and your today, and your next day. For a God who is everywhere at all times, every day is a day of visitation. And He is expecting us to live in such a way that those outside the faith will glorify Jesus because of you. Well, in closing, you are a pilgrim. Hey, you won't be home until you get to heaven. But along the journey, your Lord cares about the pilgrimage. He's always dropping in and making visits. Jesus assures you of your status. And He helps you in your struggle. And He reminds you that the stakes are high. In Christ, you're a living stone. But are you living on the rock? That's the question this morning. Our lives rest on a mammoth rock, not not a Plymouth rock. Jesus is no lame rock. We need to build a life that glorifies Jesus. We need to build a life that really rocks. Father,